with that, well, we turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We've been studying through the book of Ephesians, and we are here in really the last, I don't know, several messages in the book of Ephesians. And hopefully it has been a, a helpful um, study for you. I, I think it's been encouraging for me. And as we left off, I mean, one of the things that Ephesians is trying to do, do you remember that when we first began, we said that you could divide the book of Ephesians into two halves. The first three chapters are, are theologically heavy. It's about what it means that the gospel is true. Who we are as sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins. The fact that God in his sovereign plan has elected us before he created anything. Before the universe began, he knew us, he chose us, and he formulated a plan knowing that we would fall in sin to rescue us from our trespasses and sins. And that plan was our Savior Jesus Christ. That his death would pay the penalty for our sins. And that we might have eternal life in him. That's the basis of chapters 1, 2, and 3. And it kind of leads into the church. So you have this kind of gospel-rich theology with its application fulfilled in how we one another and connect to each other in the body of Christ. And so that's why it's the body of Christ. It is Christ that forms out, that fills out, and that, uh, that gives uh, both power and identity to this, his gathered right, body of believers. And that's why the local church is so significant. Well, if, if that's the teaching, right, the theological foundation, then starting in chapter 4, it spoke of what it meant that we are members of one another, how we interact with each other, how there is no distinction between Jews and Gentiles as far as salvation is concerned. You can still be culturally whatever you are culturally. You can still root for whoever you root for on Sundays or Saturdays or whenever days. You could be different, but our identity our, our, our being, our value is exclusively found in the person of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. That, that has led us not just from chapter 4 to kind of one anothering, but then to walk in love, being imitators of God here in chapter 5. And when we look, what we looked at last week in uh, verses 15, that we are to, to not walk in a pattern that is like that of the world or the Gentiles, or we could use the term pagans maybe for our time, but we are to walk carefully, right? Not as unwise men, but as wise. We're to make the most of our time. We, we are to be thoughtful in, uh, um, about how we seek the Lord's will. We are to use not just our lives, but really our minds. We are to think, right? And we said that that was a key component in Ephesians 4 and 5. That so much of what is wrong with the Gentile world, with the, with the pagan world, the unbelieving world, is that they're darkened in their understanding, right? They don't think or meditate on the things of the Lord. They don't care about their eternal purpose or what the, what the absolute truth of their existence is all about. But we ought to walk carefully. We should redeem our minds, our thinking. We should think differently. And if we think differently, we will live. We will walk differently. And, and last week we left off with this idea of being transformed in our thinking by being filled 
right? But being filled by the power of the Holy Spirit. A manifestation of that would be addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with our hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the final thing in there, remember we said that being filled by the Spirit, right? That there were, there were five participles addressing one another, singing, making melody, those two kind of go together, giving thanks. And the final one that we'll look at again in verse 21 is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. From there, we head off into what we would call the household codes. Instructions for wives and Christian wives and Christian husbands. Instructions for children, Christian parents. Instructions for bond servants and slaves. Instructions for how we interact with one another in the household. Because our Christian faith, right? We need to be Christians in the church. I think that's the first part of Ephesians 4. We need to be Christians to be redeemed in our workplace. I think, I think you understand that or in the world. You also need to be Christians and to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and to live like the gospel transforms and matters in your homes. And this is where we end up. And today we'll be looking at um, the submission of Christian wives and the next week we'll be looking at the sacrificial love of Christian husbands. But we need to understand that the reality of the gospel is most evident, right, in the home. But not even in parental and child relationships, but in the human relationship of husband and wife. No human relationship better mirrors God's purposes in saving sinners for himself than the institution of Christian marriage. The love of a Christian husband is like the sacrificial love of Christ for his church. And the joyful and willing submission of a Christian wife is like the devoted love of the church for her Savior. That, that's what Ephesians 5, 22, right, all the way to 33 will speak to. This is what it means to be a Christian in your home. And listen, even as I say that, I know there are obstacles there are obstacles because there are, you know, our, our intuitions trained into us by our world around us that says, no, we, should, we shouldn't speak of submission to one another. We should, we should speak of mutual submission or everyone submits, right, equally or something. There's also obstacles because even in your own home life, whether you are um, uh, um, talking about your married life or your family life, there could be things that have demonstrated that the gospel, right, doesn't seem to always touch down, not inside our home. We may be churchgoers, but the reality of transformation doesn't seem to come all the way, right, through our front door. I mean, the reality of sin can hinder us from believing that this is God's plan, or that it is, more specifically, that it is His plan for our flourishing, for our good. But if we will take that step of faith to believe that what God's Word says is sufficient for us, and not just sufficient for us to barely get by, but sufficient for us to find joy, to find purpose and meaning, I think we'll find that this life, regardless of where you are and what circumstances you have had to endure, that it is a good life. Not because of all the people around you or, or because of the particular situations you have found yourselves in, but because God is still God. And his love for you is exhibited in giving his son. And that is sufficient. 
is sufficient for you to find meaning and identity and sufficient for you that you can obey, you can follow his words and find joy regardless of what your circumstance may bring. Well, all that to say, we were looking at uh, Christian wives and their submission this morning. It's a delicate topic, but I think a significant one. And this is what we're doing. It's real simple. We'll spend the bulk of our time in the first point, the reality of submission, verses 21 and 22, explaining that out. And then quickly we'll go through the reason of submission, uh, point two, and then the scope, the extent of submission in verse 24. But let's, let's read our passage and um, kind of uh, jump in to all of this together. If it's okay, I'd like to pick up our passage earlier from verse 15 so we remember the general context of walking carefully, living wisely, and um, being spirit-filled. Starting all the way back in verse 15 of chapter 5. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalm and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their own husbands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we look to this particular topic, we realize that it is is a topic that can be um, repulsive to some. It can be challenging to others. And even amongst Christians, Lord, sometimes um, because of the difficulties of sin, it is a hard thing for us to swallow. I pray that you give us grace. You give us faith that your word speaks true and that nothing is wrong with your scriptures. Nothing is wrong with your revelation or your, your instruction for how we should flourish as, as a Christian community and as Christian um, families, but that where we might lack in energy, strength, and confidence, Lord, you are indeed sufficient. Lord, would you teach us what it means to live in submission? Would you teach us what it means to love? Would you teach us what it means by your definitions, what it means to live out, Lord, our harmonious and joyful Christian marriage and grow up another generation in our Christian homes? So that our community, that our Christian body, Lord, would represent the things of Christ well. We pray to thank you for all your grace to us, for the gospel, because it gives us life. Now help us to walk that out in a manner that honors you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's begin with the reality of submission. Reality is not the best term, I, I realize. I mean, I don't know what, I want, what, what else I could call it, but I was just trying to say this is, this is the substance. Oh, that would have been good. The substance of submission would have been a better one, right? But, but this is what we're talking about. Like, what does it mean? And we really want to begin in verse 21 because, again, um, I mean, there's a couple reasons for that, but, but one is because uh, verse 22, in our English, we have that, that verb, wives, submit to your own husbands. But in the Greek, that verb is not there. It is implied because of the final participle, right? 
the, the, you know, the verbal noun that is given to us in 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives also then to your husbands. It would read something like that if we we're going to be more literal. But our English, I think, rightly inserts submit so that we aren't losing that context. But the point being that I think there is, that this is connected to verse 21. And so we want to back up to verse 21 and talk a little bit about Christian submission. The term for submission, uh, we did mention it briefly last week, um, is a word that means to, to place yourself in an array or in an order. It suggests to, that you are placing yourself, right, underneath the authority of another. The, the word itself, if used in an active way, in an active voice, right, means that I would subordinate you, right? I would submit you. You know, wrestling, they do that, right? They, they wrestle, and then, you know, and you hold somebody down, and then, you know, they're going to lose. So you submit them. They submit. They, they lose, right? Um, that would be the active voice. But here, from verse 21, and then later in verse 24, when the word submission is used, whether it's used as a participle or as a verb, it is, in both occasions, used in the middle voice. Now, I want you to catch this, because it's important. What that means is it intentionally... Right, because it's not weird for it to come in the active voice, but intentionally in the middle voice, it means that you place yourself under the leadership of another. You voluntarily submit yourself. See, so the command here, nowhere here, is the command that husbands go submit your wife, go wrestle her down, pin her down. Okay, honey, you're gonna do this for me, right? No, the command is for wives. To willingly submit. And here in verse 21, talking about Christian submission generally, it is for any Christian under any authority to submit willingly, voluntarily to that authority under which God has placed us. So th this is the voluntary nature of submission. Now, verse 21 has been used by some to suggest that isn't this talking about a, a symmetrical right? Um, mutual submission, meaning um, if we're all to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, doesn't that mean that husbands ought to similarly submit to wives? Wives submit to husbands, husbands submit to wives, right? Parents submit to children, right? Like, don't, don't, does, isn't the command that everyone symmetrically submits to each other so that it kind of you know, undoes kind of the harsh nature of thinking that uh, a wife needs to be in submission to her husband exclusively. I, I get the intent, and I think it's driven by a couple of things. One, I think it's driven by an ideology that tells us, understandably to some degree, that a wife and her submission sounds uncharitable, chauvinistic, Maybe even oppressive. It was, let's be honest. In bad authority, it can look just like that, right? In any kind of authority, anytime you have a human authority kind of relationship, your boss can be a jerk. That's true, right? They could demand of you stuff that is unreasonable and be unfair to you compared to other employees, right? Like, like that's possible that human sinners right, can abuse their authority. And so I kind of get where that's motivated by. And we'll talk about submission. It, it, submission does not imply inferiority of val or value in terms of your identity 
or, or who you are, your worth. But I think that's one of the reasons why people want to read into verse 21, this mutual submission, so they can kind of, they can kind of you know, um, lighten the load, if we might say it that way, of wives and their submission to their husbands in verse 22. The other reason, and maybe the more grammatical reason that they take it that way, their argument is that the idea of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, to one another, means that it's everybody, to everyone, equally. You, you must all submit to each other. We all submit to each other. So, so even if wives will submit to husbands, husbands will submit to wives. That's the argument. But you know that phrase, one another, is used other places in Scripture, and, and it, it is used non-symmetrical. Let me just give you a simple event, uh, example. I'm going to give you the Revelation 6 example that, uh, that in the end um, people would slay one another. It doesn't mean that they all stabbed each other at the same time. They all died, right? It doesn't. But in Galatians 6.2, right, is that, is that, you know, that wonderful um, command to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If it's an absolutely symmetrical exchange, you need a burden. Because they're going to bring me a burden. I need to bring them a burden. We need to all have burdens. Let's unburden ourselves at the same time, right? It seems kind of weird. And, and one another, that phrase never is intended that way. So we can kind of dismiss that, uh, this idea of this mutual submission, as if, as if that made much sense, because it doesn't. It, it is driven by a desire to, to relegate down or to kind of diminish the concept of submission, um, I think, um, one for another. I think that's, that's its intention. The point is this, that within a group, right, what, what is submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ means? It means that within a group of believers, all of us have different authorities that we submit under, right? If you're a member of this church, you submit to the leadership of the church. You submit to the elders, right? The elders do submit to one another. I, I could say, man, this is what I want to do. And the other elders can say, no, that's not what we want to do. And I could say, shut up, I'm the king. And they said, no, you have lost your mind. Like, you're not the king, right? You are a pastor amongst an elder board or a board of pastors, right? So we submit to one another. We, all of us as citizens, submit to our government, right? If you are children, you submit to your parents. If you are in the workplace, right, perhaps you have a boss over you, submit to that boss. And perhaps you're a boss over someone else, and they submit to you. We understand authority relationships and structures. We need them for us to, to work and to live together in community just as, as human beings, Otherwise, you just have anarchy, and whatever, whoever is stronger or whoever is lucky, that's the person that wins, right? We all understand that there are those structures. I think the idea, simply in verse 21, is that we submit to one another. We, all of us, walk in submission. I think an application of verse 21 of Ephesians 5, submitting to one another out of the reverence of Christ, an application of that is that if you want to be a good leader, you need to know how to submit. It's kind of like, I mean, I don't know, I, I, I don't have my own business, but if I did, right, and if it became a chain like In-N-Out or something like that, I imagine that, that if I wanted someone to have a significant position in the, in the company, and I know a lot of small businesses do that, they have to work all the jobs. Why, why is that? Because they need to know what it's like to be that employee. And in a similar way, I think the best leaders that you will ever follow are ones that understand their role when they are to submit to another authority. You really don't want to follow the maverick who thinks that he is in charge 
and that he doesn't need to submit to anybody. Because his form of leadership will demonstrate, right, that he doesn't understand authority and submission, those, those authority structures very well at all. And he will lead you in a way that's detrimental and difficult. Now, we are in the body of Christ to learn to whom we are to submit in moments that we are to submit, to understand the framework of God's gracious authority structures given to us so that we can encourage children to submit to their parents, employees to submit to their bosses, congregations to their elders, and uh, Christians to their public rulers, and wives to their husbands. Can I say this final thing about that? In Scripture, there's never the reverse. There is never a command for the ones that are in these authority submission relationships where the authority is commanded to submit um, to the one that is supposed to be in submission. There's no command for husbands to submit to their wives, for elders to submit to their congregation, right? Um, for uh, parents to submit to the church, etc. It's not mutually, or it's not, it's not perfectly symmetrical. It's meant to be hierarchical, right? And that in itself probably bothers you because we're trained to be bothered by that as, as Western thinkers, as Americans. If you, if you went to a university here in the States, like you're bothered by that because that is our inclination because we are taught that. We are Americans, right? We celebrate Independence Day, not, not Submission Day, Right? We're about independence. We, we do our own thing. And, and there is some good in that. But we still need to operate, right, within the roles that God has blessed us with, believing if God has developed these roles, that they're meant for our flourishing and for our good. The last thing I'll say about verse 21 in terms of Christian submission, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Whatever other kinds of voluntary submission is found in the world, right? You sign up for the military, you serve, you have, you know, a drill sergeant and a different sergeant, lieutenants and generals above you. Whatever there is outside of the world, that is not the same thing as what is called for here. Submission in Scripture is a distinctly Christian concept at least the way that Scripture defines it, because we are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, whatever it means for us to submit to authorities placed above us, we are to, to live in submission to those authorities that God has placed above us because we revere Christ. It's, it's that term phobos, which means fear. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, trembling and shaking and, and agonizing fear. It can mean that, but it's the same idea as our Old Testament concept of the fear of the Lord. Only here, it's the fear of Christ. We can think of it this way. Out of reverence for Christ means out of reverence or fear of Christ. Fear of disappointing him. I think that's a John Piper concept. I think that's helpful. That the fear is that you're going to disappoint him. The idea... <clears throat> is that we hold Christ in such high esteem that our motivations and our attitudes are tuned in pleasing Him. That whatever else we do in this life, we do it right in reference to whether or not this pleases Him. 
And that's the come we just read, if we are filled by the Spirit, that we'll walk carefully, making the best use of our time, in reference to what God wants. They will avoid foolishness, will seek wisdom and understanding about what the Lord's will is, because it's a reference to what God wants from my life, not just simply what I can do, all right? They will avoid drunken dissipation and anything that is wasteful and full of self-pleasure and temporary because we want to be filled by the Spirit to honor our Christ, our Savior. That's what it means to live in reverence for Christ. And I think that's why it's listed amongst these other participles to say that this is what it looks like to be filled by the Spirit. To be filled by the Spirit looks like that we live in submission because we want to honor Christ who we believe has placed us exactly where we're supposed to be. We revere Christ, right? And because we revere him, um, we acknowledge that the wise, all-knowing, eternally gracious and loving Savior has placed us in these family units, in this local church, amongst these friends. He has placed us here on purpose. And the kicker is that Christ himself has demonstrated exactly what that looks like, right? Look at Philippians 2. Um, you have verses 5 through 8 up there. I'm going to read it from verse 3 so we kind of catch the whole context of that. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here's verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The submission we're talking about is distinctly Christian because Christ himself demonstrated it in humility, in obedience, in, in his willingness to do whatever it took, right, to obey the Father, to submit to His will, and to save us from our sins. Those in authority may have different roles and greater responsibility, but they don't have better roles. Do you understand? Those that submit voluntarily are not lesser or less important or less value. Their role is just different. Okay, so that's, that's Christian submission, right, from verse 21, and then that leads us then into uh, the Christian wife's submission in verse 22. Verse 22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Um, now, although the command is particular to married women, I think, you know, so if you're, not, if you're not a Christian wife, you might be thinking, okay, I could just tune this out. You could catch up, see what, you know, see what NFL teams are winning right now. I trust most of the Christian wives don't, don't really care which NFL teams are winning right now. But, um, but the idea being that, that, that I think there is, there's a word here, right, in, in our understanding of what the Christian wife is called to in her submission to her husband, that there is a word here that is helpful for our single sisters. And I think there's a word here that's helpful for our men, married or unmarried, right? But let's start with our single sisters, right? You would grow tremendously, um, by knowing the examples and the struggles of your Christian sisters that are married. You know what I mean? As a single sister, if you've never had those kind of discussions, you've never heard of how difficult marriage can be and how good marriage can be, then 
if you're looking forward to marriage, what are you looking forward to? Right? Just kind of the, the random, I'm going to have a wedding day one day. You know, I'm going to be a princess. Like you're just kind of thinking of some kind of idealized romantic vision of what things might be. Sister, you would be helped tremendously to speak to some Christian wives and to hear some of their struggles and burdens as well as to hear their blessings and the things that they should, they should you know, um, they, they'd be willing to share with you. You would be so much more cautious, I think as a single sister, um, of the man you decide to date or marry. Right? Because if this is your command, you're to submit to your husband in all things. We'll get to that. Right? Um, then, then I think you need to be looking for a certain kind of man. It, it would greatly help you if this guy loved Jesus Christ more than himself. Right? And if there's evidence that he doesn't, I think it would be a tremendous caution. And quite possibly, if that turns into marriage, um, quite a difficult um, marriage and burden unto you. The, the Lord is sufficient, and there is grace enough that abounds, but I think it would be much more challenging. So for single sisters, uh, we need to think about what this command is, because this may be your future. It may not be your future, but it may be. Similarly, married men and unmarried men would grow in the wisdom to hear what God's Word says about uh, living right, as a devout Christian wife. For men, it should sting us especially for Christian husbands, when we see our wives living in obedience to Christ while we flounder in our shepherding her protection of her. That she is flourishing in spiritual things and we are not. It should sting us because there's a part that we play in this, right? And we'll get to that next week. But husbands, Christian husbands, should be sobered by the fact that our wives are called to submit to us. And I think if we're honest about it, we'd say, man, like, Lord, you, you put a pretty big burden on my wife. Like, I, that, that, that's not that encouraging to me, right? right? Be, because we would wish that we would be better. We are not Christ. We are compared to him. Right? So I've heard this amongst uh, friends and teachers, right? Where they'll say, um, a wife's submission, so much easier than, than the man's leadership, Right? And I think I know what they're saying. I don't think that's helpful for us to say it that way because it almost sounds like, wives, why can't you submit, man? It's so much easier than what I got to do, right? It sounds weird to compare each other. I don't think that's helpful at all. But I think what they mean by that is of, of the relationship, right? Wife to husband, Christian wife to Christian husband is comparable to the church and to Christ. Which of those two objects, right? Those, those, those identities would you like to be measured against? The church or to Jesus Christ, the perfect Lord and Savior, right? I, I think in that sense, right, what the male has to do, and I'm, I'm bleeding into next week already, right? Um, what the Christian husband is responsible for bears a weight and burden that should humble us because we will never fully, right, fulfill our role to be Christ to his church, Come on, Lord, like, that's messed, right? That, that's just a little too much, right? To church, to Christ, okay, that's reasonable because that's us. But the, the, for us to be measured against Christ our Savior is, is a lot. And husbands, and would-be husbands, we would be helped tremendously to soberly consider um, what, what it would mean for us to live in a way that encourages um, and not discourages our wives from following our leadership, right? So even as we talk about a wife's 
a Christian wife's willing submission, we need to recognize that on the other half of that, if you would be a husband or if you are a Christian husband, and you should do your best to encourage that submission and not make it difficult for her. If we were to explain the idea of submission uh, kind of in, in kind of more simpler terms, I think it boils down to Christian wives being called to voluntarily give your husband every opportunity to lead you, right? But, but, but recognize, the submission is not every woman to every man, right? It's not all women need to submit to all men. That's nonsense, right? It is the Christian wife to her own husband. You, you notice that? possessive pronoun, her own husband, it suggests that he belongs to her. In fact, it doesn't suggest that she belongs to him. I mean, in in a sense, they both belong to one another. That's certainly true. But what I'm saying is when it says that she is to submit, right, wives submit to your own husbands, it means you don't just submit to every man that is is in your community. You you submit to your husband in a way that's unique to you because he's unique to you because he is yours. I love that kind of language because it, it, it is meant to suggest that this is still motivated by love, not by some kind of needful, right, necessary and oppressive obedience. This isn't subservience forced upon you. It's not the verb used in the active sense. I submit you. It's used in a middle voice. I'm willing to submit myself to you, right? And then notice that last phrase in verse 32. As unto the Lord. As unto the Lord. Before your marriage can be a place of vitality and joy, you need to recognize you need Christ. You need Christ. Two sinners making promises. I mean, sinners make promises all the time, right? But their sin will reveal itself. You you have tendencies, right, towards sinfulness Maybe it's, it's short-temperedness. Maybe it's lying about stuff. Maybe it's laziness. You have tendencies. I'm not just talking about to the, to the women in our congregation, to the sisters. I'm also talking to the brothers, right? Like we have sinful tendencies. We bring all that stuff into that marriage. We don't just show up and all of a sudden we have walked through, right? Because once you walk down that aisle, then you are sanctified brand new and there's no sin that is attached to you. You're perfect human beings. Not at all. Mark and Flo are going to sin. They might even be sinning right now. Who knows, right? They're mad at each other, right? They ate McDonald's and their stomach hurts. I don't know. (laughs) It doesn't transform us. We need Christ. And if you are to obey what it means to sacrificially love your wives, if you are to obey what it means for you to submit to your husbands, you need to walk out your Christian life. That's the motivation. That was true in the general submission um, of one another in verse 21, right? Submitting one to one another out of reverence for Christ. And it's true here. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. He is at the focus of it all. Your submission to your husband is out of service to Christ. First wave feminism, we call it first wave feminism, meaning like when feminism first became, right, a kind of a, a movement. They did some significant things that were helpful, I think, Right? The idea that, that women are equal to males in value and significance, they can vote and all that. I think that's okay. I think that's right. In fact, I think Scripture affirms that. Can I prove that out to you? Genesis 1, 
right? Verse 26 through 27. This is the end of chapter one where God has created everything in six days and he rested. And, but this is what he says. It's just a couple verses on, on how he explains the significance of making humanity. It says in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's significant. It's the first thing that is made after God's likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on it. Whatever else being an image bearer of God means, it means that we are given dominion over everything else God has created. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. Remarkable. In the image of God, he created him. Now listen, male and female, he created them. So in summation, at the end of chapter 1 of Genesis, at the end of the creation account, God says in his word, he created mankind, humankind, and he intentionally made them male and female. This is intention for the beginning, right? God didn't decide to make everyone just one gender or make everyone, you choose your own gender. God literally created male and female from the very beginning before sin enters into the world. That's significant. We are meant to be men. We are meant to be women. And that is to the Lord's glory in the creation of his image bearers. That's what we are. First Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel. There's a lot we could say about that. I think that weaker vessel refers to the fact that she is more delicate emotionally. All right? It could be physical. Right? It's possible. Human, you know, human males tend to be, in general, stronger than, than females. That's not always the case. Right? Um, it's certainly not intellectual. Right? Um, I think I could say with most of the husbands and wives in this room that I know well, your wives are better students and probably could get better grades and probably could do a better job at most everything that's intellectual than you can. Right? <laughs> that's, just, that's just truth. We, we are men. We are, we are men for action. That's the way I like to say it, to kind of excuse myself from saying I'm not as smart, right? But you get it? But they are a weaker vessel, meaning they're probably more delicate emotionally. Be careful with them, right? Live with them in understanding. Listen to why. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. That's that term that we get our term joint heirs from, fellow heirs from. They are equal in every way, right? The daughters of God are just as precious in the sight of our Savior and our Lord as the sons of God, right? So on occasion, like in Galatians, men and women, both Christians all, regardless of gender, are called sons of God. Why? Because it's trying to emphasize that you are all inheritors all together. And this is the same, join heirs. So the point being that, that, that there is truth to say that women have the exact same value in the eyes of our Lord as men. It's ontological. It's built into their being. God has made them that way. But the world is pressuring us against that. Because that's, you know, first generation, first wave feminism was helpful maybe for us in our society that way. By the time we get to, I don't know what we're in now, fourth wave, third wave, right? But by now, it's oppressive. It is, is women versus men, not in connection with. It is they demand, we demand, you are wrong. They are wrong, right? Like it, it's gotten where you would expect it to go when it's the ideology of a pagan world. Ontological value, according to Scripture, unequivocally equal. But authority relationships 
God has built that into our existence. So submission has to do with the subordination of someone in an ordered array to another that is above them, right, in authority. You willingly submit yourself under the authority of another. But ask the Lord doesn't just mean that it is, it is, it is Christian. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. We're not supposed to be there yet, right? But it also speaks to the manner of that submission. It, ask the Lord means that it's not like, it, just so we're clear, it's not that your husband is the Lord. He is not, right? You know he's not. He sins, he has issues, right? He smells, all that, right? But in a manner similar to your submission to Christ, so you are to be in submission to your husband in a like manner. So that tells you immediately that that you never submit unto sin. Why? Because the Lord, you, you never submit to the Lord unto sin because the Lord never desires for you to live in sin, right? So if it's as unto the Lord, then, then it's not for sin. So if he asks you to sin, then, then the answer is no, I can't do that, right? It, it's not passive, right? Um, it's not just sitting around and hoping that something good happens, waiting, right, at, by the door until he comes home so that you can serve him. No, the Lord would have you to flourish, to do stuff. And in the manner that you submit to the Lord, you submit to him in everything, in all things that you do. And you do that because you want to glorify him well, in the same way, I think the, the creation of women, right, is their value. They take their place as valuable in their home, in their church, in their society. Like, like even when we read Genesis 1:27, right, let us create man in our image. He means mankind, right? Let us create him, mankind, in our image, all of humanity. And he says, so let us create them, male and female, let us create them. It implies that there is an incompletion of mankind without women, right? It implies that. We'll look at a passage about that in a second. But I think the other parameter, the manner of our submission, of, of our Christian wives, their submission to their husbands, is that it is with a disposition that is like the disposition we should have for our Lord. Not, not resentful, not, not begrudging, not because I have to, even though I hate it, right? That's not submission. Biblical submission is the willingness, the joyfulness, and the gladness to try to follow the leadership of another. Wives, may I give you this as an application? Encourage your husband's leadership. Don't usurp it. Say, well, but he's really bad at doing this. Yeah, he probably is, Right? But try to encourage him nevertheless. Don't manipulate him. Don't put him down. Don't, don't injure his, his pride, make fun of him, or otherwise badger him. Right? Don't discourage his leadership. Encourage loving leadership. Support that. He should feel the joy of what it looks like because you love the Lord and you serve actively and intentionally in your submission to your husband, yes, but ultimately to the Lord. This is the Proverbs 31 woman and what is said about her towards the end. Proverbs 31, 25 to 31. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. And catch this, her husband also, and he praises her, 
Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. See, the temptation for wives is often to, to usurp that authority in marriage, right? To, to, to take the lead by manipulation, by subtlety, or by other means necessary because they believe they could do it better. And in a lot of ways, if it's just about getting something done, she probably could do it better. But can I remind you that this is part of the curse? Genesis 3 is the fall when sin enters into the world. And to the woman in verse 16, this is what God says. I will surely, right? That's all right, okay? I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Women are going to love having babies and being moms. But the pain of bringing children into the world is part of the curse, all right? It makes you kind of wonder, right? Like, what would it have been like, like if, if there was no sin? Like, you'd just be pow, popping baby, pow, right? Like, just no big deal. It's like, hey, I'm about to have a baby. Hey, let's celebrate. Pow, woo, right? I don't know, maybe. But part of something as precious and as endearing and as wonderful as it is for you to be a, a new mom, it will come by way of tremendous pain. And then the second part of that curse, in terms of your relationship with your husband, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Literally, it says your desire will be for him, right? And he will rule over you. I put Genesis 4, 7 there because the same phrase in the Hebrew is used there. And uh, in, in Hebrews, uh, I'm sorry, in uh, Genesis 4, 7, um, I think they translate it exactly the same way there, right? They translate that, that same your desire, right, shall be contrary to your husband. But in 4.7, it is about sin, how it's crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. Its desire is to consume you, to overtake you, to overbearingly lord it over you. Sin brings a wife's desire, right, to the point of wanting to lord it over her husband. See, she's going to desire to usurp that role. And at the same time, the second part of the curse concerning the husband, but he shall rule over you. I think we should take that based on its context to suggest that she's going to want to take the, 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 the steering wheel, right? She's going to want to take control of where their life is going, and he is going to rule down on her. He's going to lord it over her. This is going to be the contention in any home. This part of the curse, right? Remember in Mark 10, 42, Jesus says, you shouldn't be like the Gentiles who, when they're in authority, they lord it down on people. I think that's the concept. So it's going to be a struggle. Christian wives, let's, let's be sympathetic to that. It's going to be a struggle. And if you're saying, man, it's so hard for me, um, you, you don't know what he's like. Um, I'm going to say amen. One, I believe that it is hard for you. And I probably don't know how it's like. I might know something of, I probably know him. I probably know something of what it's like. And I'm thankful that I'm not you, right? That's, that could be hard. But I just want you to know, you're not alone. The Lord is sufficient. The scriptures are sufficient. And the church is placed around you for your protection and care. And if he is not fulfilling his role in a way that is hurtful or sinful, that's what the church is there to do. 
whether it's through church discipline or through counsel, the church is there to support you. He's not the only relationship that you have. And that's the danger of isolating yourself, even if you're dating, from being separated from the rest of the community. The community, the church is there for you because these sins will probably manifest itself at some point. And it'd be helpful for you to hear, to think, to be encouraged, to be counseled, to be protected by those that are around you. Celebrate God's goodness, all right, in the gift of your husband. You say, man, that's going to take a Yes, it might take a little bit. But celebrate God's good. Give thanks to God for his sovereignly placing this man into your life. And give him a chance to lead you. And your strength will be in the Lord. Your joy will be in the Lord. And you will be a display of God's graciousness and truth. All right? So that's the reality. That's the reality of submission. I know we took forever long on that. So I have five minutes to finish the rest. The reason for submission, all right? Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So one, he, your husband, is your head. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. Christian wives' submission is based on an authority relationship that mirrors the submission and authority relationship of church to Christ. He is your head, all right? Um, the last time that, that Ephesians talked about Christ being the head of the church is in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And then listen to the rest. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. He is the leader of his body, the church, in such a way that the church flourishes, grows, builds itself in love. And so that's the manner of Christ's headship over the church. So similarly, if the husband is doing this right, if he is a Christian, he is going to lead her in this way. But this is the authority relationship. Imperfect because he's imperfect. He's not Christ. Nevertheless, he is placed as head over his wife. It's not about power, right? But it's about leading with love. Husbands, love your wives, verse 25 will say, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. God's created design of male and female was because it is not good, according to Genesis 2.18, that the man should be alone. The man, Ha-Adam, literally means Adam or can mean all mankind. That's what his name literally means, the man, right? Or man. It's not good for mankind and for a man individually to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. A suitable helper. It means that he, she is to be the corresponding pieces, uh, kind of filling in the gaps where he is not good. They are to be a partnership. Both male and female, God created them, and he had that intention because they are to work together, right? Headship, submission, joyful support, that was the created intention. Again, this is before sin enters the world. We could say, oh, these headship and authority relationships are because of sin. No, it begins in the garden before sin enters. Letting him lead you is evidence of Christ's design and your devotion to his sovereign design of your relationship to your husband, all right? It's about walking out the Christian life to the glory of God, not, not telling God that he messed this up, but living in a way that demonstrates that he did this right, all right? He is your head. He is also, right, 
according to this passage, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and it says this at the end, and is himself its savior. Now see, I'm not going to go so far as to say he is your savior. He's not, right? In fact, he cannot save you. He cannot do anything that is spiritually transformative about you in terms of, you know, him um, um, cleansing your soul, etc., as Christ is able to do. He cannot die in your place, but he is your protector as Christ is your protector. Can't give you this. I might not have time for the rest of it, but this, this is so good. You guys remember when we studied through Ruth, right? There's that kind of weird incident where Ruth comes and uncovers Boaz's feet, and some have taken that. It's kind of some weird sexual advancement. That's so weird. You know, don't, don't let that stuff get into your mind. That's bizarre. But let me say this. So in Ruth chapter 2, this is early on in Ruth, right? Um, Ruth meets Boaz face-to-face for the first time, and she says, why have, you found, why have I found favor in your eyes that you take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? And Boaz answers, I think I just have verse 12 up there, but this is verse 11. Boaz answered and said, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Think about that. He says, he says a prayer of blessing upon her. May God put his wing in protection over you. Why is that important? Because by the time we get to Ruth chapter 3, remember she comes where he's sleeping on the hay, right? She uncovers his feet. Again, not weird, right? It's, it's literally so that his feet get cold. He wakes up in the night because she doesn't want to just lie there all night until the morning until he finally notices her. He wakes up, right? And he, that's exactly what happens. Verse 8, at midnight, the man was startled. He turned over and behold, a woman is lying at his feet. My feet was cold and there's a woman there. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. And listen to what she says. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. She used the language of his blessing to say, you prayed that God would spread his wing over me. I'm asking you, would you be willing to spread your wing over me? Would you redeem me? It's kind of almost like a proposal. Like, would you be willing to consider me for a wife to spread your wing over me, to protect me? It would be Boaz's role um, to become Ruth's head, to redeem her, to protect and provide for her. And he does that wonderfully. And it's a beautiful picture of that. And sin can distort that. And maybe you came from a family where your father or, your, or maybe even your own husband is a far distant example of the love and protection of Christ over you. You have your church. You need to seek counsel. You may need to seek protection, right? But, but you have a savior. And, and, and the point is that God's design of marriage is so that he is your head and he is indeed your protector. I'll just say one thing about our final point right? And that's simply this, the scope of your submission, right? It says this, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Just as Christians, right? Just as Christians seek to submit to Christ in his word, they do that regularly, voluntarily, thoughtfully, they use their minds in all of this, earnestly, so her submission, the wife's submission, should be unto her husband, regularly, voluntarily, thoughtfully, and earnestly right? In everything, in all things, in all matter of life, not just in the absolute commands, but in the general kind of themes of life, in everything that they face together. Let me give you this as a final application. Husbands, 
Christian husbands, would you work, diligently work to make it easy for your wives to submit to your leadership? Don't be a knucklehead. Don't be lazy. Don't act like you're the Lord of the house. Like, be a servant like Christ. Demonstrate that kind of loving leadership. And sisters, if you're not a wife, don't settle. Why are you dating that guy that's not on a good trajectory to be like unto Christ, right? Yeah, every human being is flawed. Every man is flawed. But don't take that man that just kind of is living for himself and you're kind of an appendage to him. Find the guy that's a Christ lover. He's going to mess up. He's going to be sinful. He's going to be selfish sometimes. But in the general scope of his life, he will serve the Lord and he will live selfishly because the Lord is more important than anything else. And Christian wives, practice. And maybe practice first with your words, the kind of encouragements and thankfulness, the prayers that would shape your attitudes and thoughts, right? So that you might be willingly and gladly in submission to your own husband. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. I ask that you sustain and keep us, that you bless the rest of this Lord's Day unto your glory. And Lord, we ask a special prayer for all of our sisters, that these things that are hard to do and obey, that they would do graciously, willingly, and blessedly because they believe that your word is sufficient and that you know what you're doing. We praise you for it in Jesus' name.